This morning I'm reading from Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He would judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And this is the word of the Lord. So why in the world would I share that video other than that those are always moving, are they not? Uh, The reason that I share that video is because I understand that there is a significant difficulty in our understanding Psalm 96 and the setting of it. You see, Psalm 96 was written by King David when he had established his reign in Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant was coming home. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant had not been in Jerusalem, but King David had set up a rather ornate tent And this ornate tent was the temporary temple, if you will. And the temporary temple or this ornate tent had a place called the Holy of Holies separated from the rest of it by a nine-inch thick curtain. And in that Holy of Holies, the ark would sit. And when the ark sat there, the people knew that God's glory was with them. And this was a cause for great celebration. You see, uh, we uh, look at this and we rejoice and we have tears and we are thrilled for moments like that. Uh, But what maybe we struggle to uh, grasp is how thrilled Israel was to have God in his presence, his manifest presence in their midst. And so David wrote Psalm 96 out of such a glorious occasion. And when he did, he wrote about God's salvation. He said, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Uh, It was a song about God's salvation. But what is fascinating is when David is writing about God coming home, he can't help but write a song about them going out. When God comes in, David says, God's message must go out. And so he says in this uh, hymn, this psalm, which has two verses, uh, the first beginning in verse 1, the second beginning in verse 7, declare God's glory. Number two, declare God's reign. Declare his glory, declare his reign. Well, we bump up against a word that's kind of difficult for us to, uh, to comprehend, the word glory. What does the word glory mean? The word in the Hebrew means literally weight. Someone's glory is their weightiness 
we might say. It is what they are known for, in other words. So I've illustrated it this way before, but I know of no better way uh, to kind of get you at the word glory. I'll give you some names. You tell me what that person's glory is, all right? You ready? Everybody awake? Alert, here we go. Phil Mickelson? Golf. LeBron James? Babe Ruth? Beethoven? Billy Graham? Evangelism. All right. That is their glory. It is what they are known for. So when we see in Scripture, declare the glory of God, make known what he has done among the nations, we have to look at see what comes next. Because what comes next is what God is most known for. And here is the word, or the two words, marvelous works. Some translations render that wonders. In other words, God does what no one else can do. Martin Luther, the reformer, said each believer is a new creature and a marvelous work of God. And all believers daily do marvelous works and are marvelous monuments in that they continue in spiritual life and are finally conquerors conquerors over the mighty powers of sin and the devil. Paul would uh, summarize this with a succinct statement. You and I are the trophies of the grace of God. When we week in and week out live out the faith, we are trophies of God's grace. We are wonders of a great God. Matthew Paris is an avowed atheist. In 2008, he made a bit of news with this headline. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. I'll say it again. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Let me quote from his article. He said, before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to Malawi. There is a small British charity uh, working there. There's Pump Aid, which works to bring uh, water to villages. He said, it inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He says only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. 
And he notes the major worldview differences between Christianity and tribal beliefs. He says anxiety, fear of evil spirits, of ancestors, of nature and the wild, of a tribal hierarchy, of everyday things, strikes deep into the whole structure of rural African thought. Every man has his place and call it fear or respect. A great weight grinds down the individual spirit, stunting curiosity. He says, but when they convert, there is a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seem to be missing in traditional African life. Converted Africans stand tall. I've been there to Senegal on more than one occasion. I've witnessed this. I watched the pictures as they went through. I saw Antoine sitting in a picture right beside the chief of the tribe where we go and serve. The joy on Antoine's face. The fear on the, tribes, on the chief of the tribe's face clear to me as I observed those pictures. Plumer, who wrote an extensive commentary on the Psalms, says this, Heaven is already and will be forever full of wonders. A religion without wonders is false. A theology without wonders is heretical. So what is God known for? What is this great wonder-working God known for? Well, verse 5 says he is the creator All of it begins there. He is the creator. He is also splendid. He is majestic. He has strength, but he also has beauty. He has both. Verses 4 and 5, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. It's fascinating to be in another country and to see their gods they really honestly are almost laughable to us. Uh, The belief that if you take a cow's tail, tie on the end, uh, the, the tailpipe of your bus, you won't have an accident. As bad as I drive, I should have done that years ago. That belief, or the belief in our bus driver, Mangoni, is a Muslim. The belief that if he hangs something over his, a pair of baby shoes, over where he drives, that somehow he will be protected. And we look at those gods and say, those are worthless idols. Those gods are really not gods at all. But you and I also struggle with worthless idols, do we not? And perhaps to an African, our idols might be laughable too. They might look at us and go, why is it they they put so much trust in? Jerry Bridges, in his book, calls these functional saviors. Functional saviors, saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. Key word, dependence. So how do we identify them? Let me share them with you and then to say what's on the screen will be in the blog this week. Fill in the blanks. I am preoccupied with. If only, then I would be happy. I get my sense of significance from I fear losing. The thing that gives me the greatest pleasure is when I daydream, my mind goes to. 
Bridges says, and I'll add more from his list this week, that however we complete those sentences most likely defines our functional saviors. The things or people we lean on to bring us what God alone can bring. You cannot declare God's glory while glorying in someone or something else. You can't do both. Secondly, second stanza, verse 7, declare God's reign. In the first stanza, the word sing occurs three times. Sing, sing, sing. If you look at verse 8, ascribe, ascribe. Verses 7 and 8, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. But something has happened. And maybe at first read, you missed it. All right? If we sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, that's one through three. But all of a sudden, in verses 7 and 8, those who are singing are the ones who have heard. Look at this. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, meaning tribes. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts, worship, tremble before him. Look at this. All the earth. All the earth. Now, what does ascribe mean? Ascribe means to give someone what they are due. When you ascribe someone glory, you praise them rightly. If someone's a fantastic ball player, you talk about their ball play. And if they are a great uh, musician, you speak of their musical ability. Look at this. Say, among the nations... God has come in, and they're singing a new song about the presence of God that has come in, but they dare not uh, hold the presence of God just for themselves. Now, there's this mistaken idea among some that missions actually began in the book of Acts, but it did not. Let me go back to the book of Genesis chapter 17. God goes down into the land of Ur, which was in Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and Euphrates River, and he calls out Abram. And let me deal with a notion that may be kind of trekking around in your brain, one that I held for many years, that Abram was a pretty good guy. As a matter of fact, he was such a faithful good guy that God called him. No, if you read the full record of the Old Testament, Abram and his family were worshiping idols when God called him out. As a matter of fact, we see Abram's just being blown away by God here. He was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram did what anyone should do when God calls him or her fell on his face. God, no way. Me? That's his response. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of what? Nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. 
God's heart has been for peoples, for nations, for unreached peoples since the beginning. He raised up Abraham so that through Abraham and through eventually Israel, the news would go out and the message would go out and the gospel would be shared and it would be declared and it would be proclaimed. What is the invitation to the nations? Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him. Come before a holy God and worship him. That is the invitation to the nations. And what will God do? He will judge the nations. And that brings a predicament. Why? Well, all you have to do is turn on the news today and discover that if God judges the nations, we're in a heap of trouble. If God judges the peoples, we are in a heap of trouble. It's hard to find any people group, if not impossible, who are at their core worshiping him. Evil abounds. Sin runs rampant. Greed. Murder. Power-hungry people do awful things, don't they? So if you're a thinking person, it has to go through your mind, how can God be a good God? How can God be a just God and judge justly? How can a God who is holy, without setting aside his holiness, allow me to sing who isn't? If I'm not holy, if, if I know what I've thought this week and what I've done this week and my own thoughts and my own deeds cause me to wonder how I can come into the presence of a holy God, how about all that's out there for everyone to see? We are instructed to worship him in the splendor of holiness. I'm convinced that this is the question of the ages. And, and with Tim Keller, I, I believe that, that playwrights, without realizing it, write these stories into their plays. And that songwriters write these stories into their songs. That movie makers write this story into their movies. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? Well, in theology, the only way a holy God can allow unholy people to be in his presence is if there is something called redemption. And that redemption has to be someone who is worthy, who becomes a substitute for someone who isn't. We call it in theology substitutionary atonement. The word atonement means to cover. So to cover one's sins, then somebody subs in for the one who cannot die for himself or offer a fitting sacrifice, God himself provides the sacrifice. So it's woven through the movies, never perfectly, but it's almost always there. The Lion King most of you, I presume, have seen the movie, right? It's a classic now. Portrays the struggle between good and evil. Simba is born, and when Simba is born, Scar is not happy. Simba's uncle, who wants to be king, 
And so this battle ensues, and Scar cooks up a scheme. In his scheme, he'll partner with the hyenas, won't he? And he will get them to cause the wildebeest to, uh, to stampede. He will do that when Simba and his dad are together. They will be unable to escape. All right, so let me just refresh your memory. Check out the screen. Why is it that the video at the beginning of the soldier grabs us and this one does too? One word, sacrifice. You see, if the dad in the first video has been on a hunting trip, who cares? You should have been home for six months, right? No, we're struck because of sacrifice. It's the same reason this one does. Now, tiny, tiny words are huge. I want to go to the very last verse. Look at verse 13 in the last statement. He, God, will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in... There's that possessive adjective. Whose faithfulness? His, not yours, and not mine. Well, what does that mean? If it's his faithfulness by which he will judge the world and peoples, it is because someone made a sacrifice, namely Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ died on the cross as the substitute where all of us deserve to die for our sins. So much so, and God's faithfulness so great, that true to himself, unlike Mufasa, Christ rose from the dead three days later. He ascended 50 days later. He sits at the right hand of God, and one day he'll come back. Now, What will that day look like? Let me back up and let's talk about it. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Verses 11 and 12, let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who's just subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All right, so when you woke up this morning and heard the birds singing, somewhere deep in them they know this isn't how it ought to be. That's what Romans 8 says. If you ever don't feel at home here, it's because you're not at home here. And so when we trek to Africa, when Mark and Michelle head out in a couple of months, when we go to Ecuador in just four weeks and spend time in an orphanage, why? We have one message. Declare God's glory and declare God's reign. And whatever your worthless idols are, would you leave them? And would you worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sent his only son to die. In the barren desert of Senegal and the dense jungle of Ecuador and the Blue Ridge Mountains are singing the same song. That's what Psalm 96 says. I'll be joined on the stage by a few friends Edward Moat grew up in the mid-1800s without godly parents. His parents owned a local pub, which was a rough spot in his day. When he, was at the, when he was 15 years old, he heard a preacher preach, and the Spirit pricked his heart, and Moat gave his life to Christ. Well, he became apprenticed as a cabinet maker and became quite a good one. As a matter of fact, For the next 40 years of his life, he did two things. He built cabinets and wrote hymns. And just in case you think perhaps it's a bit late for God to sign you up in his work that he's called you to do, at the age of 55, Moat became a Baptist minister. It was before that, he said, as he was walking on uh, his way to work, Uh, in his cabinet shop one day that the Lord moved on him and said, write a song about the gracious experience of a Christian. And he said, while I was walking, these words came to my mind as the the chorus. He, He named the song, Jesus, My All in All. It was later renamed. But this is the chorus. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Within the next two days, all the other verses would come to moat. And the following Sunday, he found himself in the home of a friend whose wife was quite ill. And the friend said to him, On the Lord's day, we always sing, we always pray, we always read from God's word. Do you have a song for us? It was there in that home on that Sunday that this song was first sung. We close with it today because it, it, re- it really is the message of missions. It declares God's glory. It declares his reign. Listen and sing with us if you'd like. My hope is built. Great words. Great words.